We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And though the week got started off really, really cold, uh, it's great to be here. And uh, looking forward to your phone calls and your questions. Um, Your questions, whatever's on your heart and mind, what we believe, why we believe it, uh, maybe something that's troubling you, something going on in your life, I'll do the best that I can to answer those questions. 340-9585, that's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is by using the free KSLR mobile app. The hands-free feature will get you here into the studio very, very safely. One more time, 340-9585. Before we go to the phones, we've got uh, a reminder tonight here at Calvary Chapel is our Monday night men's, women's, and youth Bible studies. You can bring the whole family. Um, May Cruzado will be teaching the ladies. You can also watch the ladies study uh, live stream at calvarysa.com. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. Uh, He just sent me an email. It's going to be fun tonight. He says, I get to teach the men to be gentle like nursing mothers. I love that passage of scripture. So that's also at seven o'clock. And then uh, our high school age with Pastor Nelly and our junior high school each group with Chris Sanchez, who heads our junior high school ministry here. So all of that is online. Hope you had a great day at church. We had a lot of people here, in spite of the fact that it was freezing cold. Um, uh, a difficult message, an odd message, but at the same time, um, it, we had a, a great day, and I hope that you did. And I hope that people got saved where you went to church. Okay, let's go right to the phones and talk with Terry on line one. Terry, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, thank you for taking the call, Pastor Ron. Terry McDonald here. And just wanted to say uh, this opportunity to call in and say thank you, Paula, and everybody from the bottom of my heart for everybody who had me in their hearts and prayers. Uh, As you can testify to, to your situation medically recently, this was truly a humbling experience. And uh, uh, it's an amazing thing. But as you have said so often, uh, God, Jesus, is never early, he's never late, but always on time. Mm-hmm. And he proved it to be so true in, in my case. And uh, I'm so thankful to be out and, and talking with you. And uh, I used to tell people I had the moves of a ninja. Well, I still do. It just <laughs> takes longer. It's, uh, it's just a much slower ninja. Huh? Oh, geez. <laughs> you, know the, you know the deal. But I do yeah. appreciate everyone's prayers, and I am out. I was trying to get to church Sunday, but uh, had to go back in for some issues. But uh, I was re-released and then out, and, and very uh, thankful, appreciative. Well, you know, Terry, said, thank you for calling. Let's rejoice in it. Boy, I tell you, yeah. when you can, it's it's an amazing thing, and I thank God for it. Yeah. 
So I just wanted to well, share thank that you. with you. Uh, Terry, my pleasure. Before you hang up, I uh, we asked the radio audience to be praying for you last week. Terry is the man who had a heart attack who's been at our church for 19 years. So, uh, you know, I know him as well as I know my brother. And he is um, uh, just a... a, a, a on fire evangelist for Jesus. We've had more strays be dragged in here by Terry and, and um, um, to hear he had a heart attack was tough. So thank you all for your prayers. And Terry, I too was hoping to see you yesterday, but um, I'm really, really grateful that you're home and, and seemingly doing well. Thank you, Terry. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Scott is good. Here is a question from our email inbox from Kirby. It says, Pastor on yesterday in service, you were referencing Galatians two eleven when Paul opposed Peter. You said that James had sent some of his people to check up on Peter. Did James check up on Peter because he was in authority over him? Or was it just because he was interested in what was happening in Antioch? Uh, was there a hierarchy within the apostles directed, implied, or assumed? Um, yeah, I think there was a, a, an assumed uh, and an implied, not a directed hierarchy, Kirby, but but uh, an implied, certainly an assumed uh, hierarchy. Peter was uh, the, the um, apostle that God used, of course, uh, to start the church in the book of Acts chapter 2. He was the one who took the gospel uh, to uh, Gentiles, to the house of Cornelius, um, just after he had gone in to check on the work that Philip was doing in Samaria. Now, here's the, the issue, uh, Kirby. Um, when um, the church was spreading, remember, and I think I think we forget this when we read the book of Acts and we're reading uh, Paul and Peter's and John's epistles. The early church was exclusively Jewish until we get to Acts chapter 10, which is a, a great deal of time. Six, seven, eight years have gone by since Acts chapter 2. Um, that's when Gentiles began to be assimilated in the church. Before that, Samaritans were, be, were, were being assimilated into the church. And Jews didn't believe that God had any plans for Samaritans and especially for Gentiles. So when word started to spread that Gentiles were getting saved or that Samaritans were getting saved, you can imagine the, the sort of the legalist uproar in the church in Jerusalem, a church that was committed to its Jewishness, a church that was committed to keeping the law of Moses, to circumcision, uh, to Jewish dietary laws and all those uh, other issues. Uh, you can imagine the, this trouble that that would, would stir up. Well, when Peter came back from Cornelius' house, he had to say, look, when, when I saw that God gave them the Holy Spirit as he gave us, and, and uh, it turns out everybody praised the Lord for it, but prejudices die hard. And so by the time I was talking about yesterday, our study is in Romans uh, here on Sunday, uh, we were talking about legalism, the weak brother versus the stronger brother, and, and, and not judging people based on disputable issues within the church. And um, Paul said in Galatians 2 that he opposed Peter to the face when he came to Antioch. And the reason he did it is because before James came, he would sit with Gentiles, he would eat with Gentiles, and in essence he would act the same way the Gentile believers were acting. But when James sent people to Antioch to check out what was happening, Peter was intimidated a little bit, and, and even Barnabas was led astray. And they pulled away from the Gentiles, ate only with the Jews. And, and, and Paul basically said, Peter, this is wrong. You're being a hypocrite. Now, the question about James and his authority, uh, James was clearly the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, remember, Peter was gone a lot. Even when the church was entirely Jewish, Peter was gone a lot. He was always traveling, evangelizing. Uh, he would be in and out of Jerusalem. Uh, but Peter was traveling throughout the, the, the Roman Empire at the time. James was solidly located in Jerusalem, and he was the unquestioned leader of the church in Jerusalem. So when James would hear these things, he would send people out, emissaries, check out what's going on. Let's make sure all of these things are okay. 
And uh, that's when, when the people came, when Peter was sort of trapped into this thing of legalism on his own. So, yes, he, it was uh, an implied pecking order of authority uh, and assumed, but never directed. This is just uh, something that man did on his own. So I hope that answers your question. Kirby, thank you for listening to the Bible study. Um, let's go to John on line one from Cibolo. John, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you very much, Pastor Ron. Um, I have two questions, if you have the time. Uh, the first one is in Numbers chapter 11, where it talks about the Israelites complaining about uh, not having meat to eat. So God said he would pretty much force them to eat 30 days of nothing but quail. But then when God provided the quail, uh, they didn't eat it 30 days. They... Uh, they had a plague. So I know God doesn't necessarily change his mind. I'm just wondering if you can kind of explain what happened there. Okay, I can do that. What's your second question? The second question is concerning uh, Mo uh, yes, Moses and Aaron. They were brothers, and Aaron's sons were priests, but Moses were not. Can you explain that? Uh, yeah, I can. Thank you, John, very, very much. Uh, let me do the second one first. Um, the priesthood. Moses was the unquestioned leader of the people of Israel throughout the, the, the Exodus wilderness. Uh, but when God established uh, the roles that they would have, he was very clear that it was the line of Aaron, the Aaronic line that the, the Levites would come from. They would be the priests, and high priests especially could only come from the line of Aaron. So it wasn't because Moses was Aaron's brother that he was also qualified, or his sons could have been. It was simply the, the, the random call of God. God declared that it would be the line of Aaron that the priests would, would filter down through. And that's exactly what happened. Moses, uh, his sons, were not part of that line at all. Different callings, different responsibilities, um, and uh, and for the most part, it worked out pretty well, uh, say the golden calf incident and those kind of things. And then, of course, we know that Nadab and Abihu were, uh, were not godly men, uh, and uh, they were killed by God for misrepresenting him to much is given, much is required. So... Uh, just different calls between Moses and Aaron and their descendants. Uh, the first question with the quail. Um, uh, God was basically giving them the quail as a punishment. They were because they were grumbling and, and complaining. Uh, in fact, verse 18 of Numbers 11 says, Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. Do you ever have your mom, John, say something like, you know, you're going to sit here until you eat every bite of that? Well, that's exactly what God was going to do. So uh, this was a punishment because they, they didn't believe. They, they were caught in unbelief because they were complaining and grumbling. He says, you're going to eat it for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you are sick of it. So God was giving them what they wanted. But as is often the case, John, when we get what we want, it's not really the best thing for us. So it's not like God says, OK, I'll do it. And then he had a change of heart. God doesn't change. This was always intended to be a judgment. Now, there's always a point to God's judgment. And what God was trying to do is teach them that I know what's better for you than you know what's better for you. So do what I tell you to do, eat what I give you to eat, and don't complain. Um, but what they did, they ate until they were full of it, and uh, it was just a judgment of God that fell upon them. So it wasn't God changing his mind at all. Thank you, John. I appreciate the, the question. Uh, we had another question just called in to uh, the producer in the studio anonymously. Um, what is the difference between Samaritans and Gentiles? Uh, Samaritans, uh, you may remember, were um, originally Jews. They were, they were half Jews. Um, uh, the ten northern tribes were overtaken uh, by the um, Assyrians. You know, whenever you see Nineveh, you're talking about Assyria. So during the time of Jonah, the, the, the 
Assyrians would uh, be God's instrument of judgment uh, because of their sin. And what the Assyrians did, and the Babylonians would later do in the south, what the Assyrians did was they would come in and they would take the the women for themselves. They would uh, try to breed the Jews out of existence. And the reason for all of the friction between uh, Samaritans and Jews that we read about in the Gospels is because Jews considered them half-breeds. Uh, only slightly better than Gentiles. And uh, Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. You remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus went to the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, he told his disciples, I must needs go through Samaria. And of course his appointment was to talk to this one woman. And they they said, "But, but Jews don't go to Samaria. Jews would actually walk days out of their way not to set foot on Samaritan soil. That's how antagonistic Jews and Samaritans were against each other. Uh, When he started talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, she said, how is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me, a Samaritan woman? And when the disciples came back after getting something to eat, they were surprised that Jesus was talking to her. So there was just a lot of animosity between the two peoples large part because Jews considered them half-breeds, um, ill-equipped for the kingdom of God, and uh, there was just um, all kinds of strife between the two. Now, Gentiles, um, uh, anonymous, you and I are Gentiles, non-Jews. A Gentile, uh, sometimes it references to Greeks. Um, it's the same thing we're, we're referencing here. Everything that is not Jewish. And in the early church, I was talking about it in response to the other question. Um, in the early church, when Peter was sent to the household of Cornelius, it was not lawful, according to Jewish law, for a Jew to go into the house of a Gentile and certainly not to eat in the house of a Gentile. That's why God went through all of the the, the, the process of, of giving Peter that vision on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner. Rise, kill, and eat, Peter. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Don't call anything that I've made clean unclean. So that was what uh, he was he was talking about. God saying you're going to. He was preparing Peter to go. He was preparing Peter to go to the Gentiles. And when Cornelius and his whole household believed and saved, well, that was Gentile inclusion. Now, in uh, anonymous, we're studying right now. You can go to. Uh, uh, calvaryessay.com and listen to the last two studies I've done uh, in the book of Acts um, uh, the first missionary journey Paul the, the apostle to the Gentiles is now going to the rest of the, the known world in the Roman Empire at the time going primarily to take the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead to Gentile peoples and of course now uh, the, the church is expanding way beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. The church is now expanding to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Gentiles, uh, that chapter, chapter 10 in the book of Acts, is really where our forefathers came from. Europeans and Africans and and uh, um, people from, from what we know now as the seven continents of the world. Um, we know... Um, that that's where we got our start. So when you watch Paul's first missionary journey uh, in the book of Acts, um, followed by the other missionary journeys, those were the journeys that he was going on um, that we owe him everything for because that's where we were there. So Samaritans are half-breeds between Assyrians and Jews, and Gentiles are non-Jewish people anywhere and everywhere. So thank you, Anonymous. I hope that clarifies things for you. 340-9585, here is a question from our mobile app from Kirby, again, uh, in Psalms, I'm sorry, is Psalms 104, verses 27 through 30, a symbol of the Pentecost, or could it be a symbol of our personal transformation as born-again Christians? Verse 29 says, we die to ourselves, and verse 30 is the filling of the Holy Spirit into our lives. Um, No, that would be taking, uh, stretching it way too far. Um, the, the, the 104th Psalm is, is just a psalm that is dictating God's sovereignty over all creation. And um, what he's saying is that the, the sea, vast and spacious, the creatures in the sea, living things large and small, the ships that go to and fro, uh, even the Leviathan, which is a powerful animal which depended on God. Um, he says, all of these look to you to give them their food at the proper time. 
When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. So that's really not an allegory for um, people at all. This is just uh, the entire psalm from the beginning to the end is about the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the glory of God. But more than that, even, it's the total dependence of all creation on God for um, their sustenance. Um, When you feed them, they rejoice. Uh, When you withhold your hand from them, they're terrified. Just we all depend completely on God, Uh, man, animal, every living thing. And it's always been that way. So that's what he's saying there, Kirby. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to a question from Victor. He says, why do I feel condemned if Romans 8 says there's no condemnation if you're in Christ? Victor, we have an enemy who is always trying to condemn us, always trying to make us feel guilty. And honestly, and Victor, this isn't personal, but uh, when we are feeling condemned, uh, it's either because we're guilty and we need to repent of our sins or we're feeling condemned because we don't have enough faith to believe that God has freed us from the need to be condemned at all. You know, I like the difference between condemnation and conviction. And I make sure my church hears this quite frequently. Condemnation comes from the devil. Condemnation makes you feel unworthy. Condemnation draws you away from God and away from the Word of God and away from the Church of God. Condemnation draws you farther and farther away. Conviction of the Holy Spirit draws you nearer to God. And that's how you know what the source is. If you feel condemned and I don't feel like reading the Bible or I don't feel like going to church or God knows I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world, uh, that's the enemy trying to destroy you. And what we have to do in a situation like that is use Romans um, 8.1 as sort of a sword of the Spirit. You know, he's throwing these darts at us, these fiery darts. Well, we've got bigger weapons. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the way we respond to feeling condemned is say, look, I know I'm not condemned. I know what the Word teaches, Jesus. I know that what you said is complete. And because it is complete, I'm not going to give in to this condemnation that the enemy is putting on me. Now, Victor, here's something that you need to remember always. The enemy is never going to give up. He's never, ever going to give up. He's going to keep pushing buttons as long as they work. So what you've got to do is, by faith, take those thoughts captive, make them obedient to Christ. Now, here's what I do in my time if the enemy is trying to condemn me. I just say, wait a minute, my sins are forgiven. I confess, I'm purified from all unrighteousness, so I know that's the enemy. Jesus, I choose to listen to you. I choose to believe what you have done for me. Now, if you do that often enough, then the enemy will try something else. But you're going to feel condemned, but remember, what you feel isn't as important as what you know. There really is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that we won't feel condemned, because, well, frankly, we do. Now remember, conviction draws you to God. Repentance, Victor, ought to be the, the, the quickest, easiest thing for any of us who are in Christ. I think sometimes when the Spirit of God is convicting us and Jesus just wants to say, God, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And yet we hold on to it or we justify why we did what we did. Well, that's giving the the devil this huge opening to attack us and to pound us. And he is without mercy. He is relentless. So that's why we have to be on guard all the time. Now, one other word about being condemned or feeling guilty. I also tell my church that feeling guilty is good if you are. Because then you can, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, be completely cleansed of all of your guilt. And we have to have enough faith to believe that as well. I think sometimes, Victor, isn't it true? We don't feel like we're really forgiven unless we felt really bad for a long time. Well, God wants us not to feel bad. He wants us to 
Repent, confess, and then walk with him again. So the next time you're feeling condemned, remember, Victor, that's a devil who's lying to you. And the more he can get you off track, off course, the more likely you are to mess up again. So just confess whatever it is. God, I'm sorry I did it. Don't say I did it because somebody did this to me. Don't say I did it. Uh, I know I shouldn't have, but you understand. Just say I blew it. And I'm so sorry. I don't want to blow it again. Please help me. And then there's no condemnation because you are forgiven, cleansed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Victor, I think a lot of times we're so slow to repent or so slow to agree with God. When John says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, that's if you agree with God about your sin. I think sometimes we're slow to do that because we're trying to convince ourselves that the things that we're doing are somehow okay. So don't worry about feeling condemned. Know by faith that you're not, because that's what the Bible says. It has nothing to do with what you feel. And Victor, I know you have enough faith to believe what the Word has said and apply it regardless of what's going on. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Victor. Great question. Is it true we all feel condemned? <laughs> I just hate that about the enemy. He's just no mercy. Hey, we got 30 minutes left in the Monday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Texas. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our last half hour of the Monday program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is an anonymous question. You are so against women preachers, but Romans 16 says there was a female apostle. You should change your view. Well, anonymous Romans 16 doesn't say there was a female apostle. You're talking about Hunia. Definitely a female name. But this is why we need to be good readers. It doesn't say she was an outstanding apostle. It says she was noted as outstanding among the apostles. This was a young woman, most believe she was young, who was well known to everybody in that part of the world at that time. Uh, Her faith was exemplary. Her walk with God was magnificent. So much so that she was considered outstanding by, not among, by all the apostles. And all we have to do to understand that, Anonymous, is read it correctly. So she was not a female apostle. Uh, There are no female pastors. And see, it's not me being against women preachers. The Bible says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. Now, that can't be interpreted. Just, this isn't my opinion. Just take it for what it says. So if a woman says she is called to be a preacher, she's wrong because God restricts the office of pastor to men. Not because men are better, because men are smarter, or men are more spiritual. But it's because that's the way God set it up. Eve was the one who was deceived. She was the one who would now have to submit to the authority of her husband, even though her desire would be to rule her husband. So this is the way it was established. And Anonymous, and to everybody else out there, because I'm getting this question with more frequency, and the more we see women usurping the office of or the role of a pastor, we're going to get it more. Um, Well, isn't that sexist, or isn't that being unfair to women? No. God has given them everything in the church except that one office. Why is that such a difficult or an onerous thing to deal with? So, 
Hunia was a, 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 a wonderful woman of God, noted by the apostles as being outstanding in her faith, but she wasn't an apostle. And you really have to stretch the Greek to come up with an argument that says she was. And I think because you are pretty strong, I should change my view. I think what you need to do is be honest as you really parse the Word of God. You have to be honest. It's not um, It's not a difficult thing to understand. 340-9585. Let's go to San Antonio and talk with Linda on line one. Linda, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks, Pastor Ron. My pleasure. Um, I just have a question. <laughs> um, I don't want this to throw anybody off or make anybody... Well, anyway, I'm just going to ask a question. When Jesus uh, was on the cross, and I know Jesus is God, uh, but he was also man as he was dying on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And I know there are religions that teach that human beings can pray for the forgiveness of other people, and I also know that the Bible does not teach that. Um, we have to ask for forgiveness ourselves. So can you explain that to me? I thought maybe there were some Greek Hebrew, Hebrew meanings that might, you know, mm-hmm. clarify what he meant. Okay, I can do that. Um, okay. you know, he wasn't saying, he, thank you, Linda. He wasn't saying certainly that that uh, they didn't know what they were doing. They did what they did with malice. They did it um, um, with predetermination. Um, they knew exactly what they were doing. But what Jesus was doing was quoting a psalm that everybody knew and, and, and understood was messianic in nature. So he wasn't asking for absolution for their sins. What he was stating was two things. Prophetically, he was saying that in my death, they can be forgiven if they ask. But he was quoting a psalm from the cross in the middle of his agony that Jews recognized as messianic. In effect, he was evangelizing. The same thing was true when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, he's quoting a psalm that was universally accepted as messianic. So he wasn't um, talking to uh, himself. You know, I had a question last week. Was he just talking to himself on the cross? No, he was talking to his father. Now, Linda, you didn't ask this question, but I want to be sure everybody understands that that while Jesus was, was always God, he never stopped being God. In his incarnation, he was also always human. Now, he carries that dual nature uh, for the rest of his life, as we will. We will be in our glorified, resurrected bodies, physical bodies, just like Jesus. Of course, God the Father is spirit. God the Holy Spirit is spirit. They don't have physical presence, but Jesus does. And so he was speaking to his Father, And while they're both God, the Holy Spirit is God, one God, three persons, he was also um, recognizing the distinct and different personalities that identify each of the persons of the triune God. So the Father is separate from the Son. The Son is separate from the the Spirit. Uh, The Father sent the Son to reveal who he was. And Jesus sent the Spirit so that the Spirit would testify of him. So the, the, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, all have their own responsibilities as it relates to mankind here on earth. But they also always had perfect unity that was only broken when Jesus was becoming sin for us. Again, he didn't stop becoming, uh, he didn't stop be, being God But the fellowship with God, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only was he quoting that psalm, but he was proving that psalm prophetically accurate because Jesus was on the cross becoming sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So, Linda, that's what he was doing. But it was a a, a, quoting a messianic psalm. When he does that, he's, he's actually saying to the people, if they would just believe the word and they know that these words are attributed to the the uh, the Messiah. It's so important that two of those seven last utterances 
recording these psalms, and in effect, he was evangelizing the people that were there guilty of his murder. You know what I like to think about, Linda, and this may not make any sense to anybody but me, but when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, I know he was looking into the faces of some people who 50 days later would be saved on the day of Pentecost. Some of those same people would say, what did I do? Peter is going to point a finger at him and say, you killed God, the creator, the author of life. And the Bible says they were pricked, the King James says they were pricked to the heart, cut deep. Brothers, they said, what shall we do? And that's what Jesus was referring to prophetically. But the answer was believe in Jesus Christ, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. So, Linda, that's what that was all about. 340-9585, Paul wants to know, how were Pharaoh's magicians able to do the miracles that Moses did? Well, Paul, there's only two possibilities. And we can't be sure which is which. I've got an opinion, and I'll give it to you, but but the two possibilities are, one, that, that the magicians were able to conjure the power of Satan. Satan, of course, is able to do miracles. They're counterfeit miracles, but they're supernatural in nature, nonetheless. Um, and and it, there are people who will die on this hill. No, that was just the power of Satan working uh, in opposition to the power of God. You remember that um, uh, and this is where they get it. The 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 magicians no longer had uh, the power when it comes to creating life. When they throw dust and, and and make gnats or the biting flies, they couldn't do that. Um, but they could do the 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 water turning to blood. They could do the snakes made out of snaps, uh, staffs. Um, but they couldn't create life. And so uh, some will say it was the power of Satan. I personally think that it's more likely that they were just magicians. And they did it by deceit. Uh, we watch stuff on TV with magicians. Uh, you know, with with the advent of shows like uh, um, the, the American talent shows and stuff like that. The magicians are getting really, really popular. And some of the things that they can do are amazing. I watch some of the judges on those shows, and they're seeing it, you know, up close in person, and they're they're blown away with what these people are doing. And what they're doing is they're just using deception. And the deception, I've been at some um, really, really good magic shows in Las Vegas in my older days, Siegfried and Roy and others, uh, I watch an elephant disappear. I don't know how an elephant can disappear, but it did. I saw it, but it was just deception, of course. And and I believe that these were just magicians who were uh, using deception on the people. Uh, I also believe uh, Janice and Jambres, or at least the, uh, the the legend is that those were the names of the magicians who opposed Moses. Uh, I believe that they had Pharaoh bewitched as well. So deception has always been a powerful tool. So I hope uh, that helps. Um, let's go to Patrice calling from Pleasanton. Patrice, thanks for calling. You're Hi, on the air. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, I was raised a Catholic, and I believe in God, our Heavenly Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, who was sent down. Well, I just never grasped the Holy Spirit part of it and where that fits into the whole Trinity. Okay. I can do that for you. In the Gospel of John, uh, from chapter 14 through chapter 17, Jesus, uh, Patrice, is all alone with his disciples. And his whole purpose is to convince them that now is the time for him to die. You remember that all leading up to that, they were uh, sort of uh, willfully ignorant of the fact, no, Jesus, you can't die. Uh, Peter even said, may that be far from you, Lord. And and that's when, when Jesus said, Peter, get thee behind me, or to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Uh, finally, in, in, in that last few days, he sat them down in that upper room, and he said, I'm going to die. He, he said... In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So it was a statement of purpose. But in that process, he 
dealt with the, the, the real fears of the hearts of his disciples. Now imagine for a moment, Patrice, just how horrible it was for them. They've left everything and everyone for, for Jesus. They've seen him do amazing things. In Peter, John, and James's case, they saw him transform before their very eyes. And suddenly, these 12 men have got to deal with the fact that Jesus now says, I'm going to die. How can God die? They knew who he was, and they couldn't understand it any better than we can. And so in the middle of that chapter, he goes to verse 15, or chapter 15, rather, and begins to talk about the Holy Spirit. And he starts off by saying, it's good for you that I go away. Now, none of the disciples believed that it was good for them if Jesus went away. But so Jesus explained, if I go, I will send another. That Greek word is alos, and it's, it means of exactly the same substance or sort or character, but different in terms of physicality. So Jesus said, look, I'm going to go away. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. But it's good for you that I do, because when I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he will be in you, and he will be with you even to the end of the age. So what Jesus basically said, I'm going to send you another me. Won't look like me, won't feel like me, but it'll be me. And that's what happened when Jesus told them to wait, to go to Jesus and wait for the, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power that comes from heaven. He was referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's job on earth, according to Jesus, is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And the Spirit's job was to testify continually of Jesus. When he came, then we would fulfill Jesus' great commission. So the Holy Spirit, who is 100% God, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, when Peter looks at him and said, you have not lied to men, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you lied to God. So the Holy Spirit is just the presence of God on this earth post-Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will be his presence on earth in the church, living in each of us, Patrice, until Jesus returns. And we can read about that in Revelation chapter 9. So the Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Father is, just as much God as Jesus is. His job now in this dispensation we call grace, uh, the, the, the break between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, his job is to convince people that we're sinners, to convince us that Jesus is the answer for sin, and to gather the people who are appointed unto salvation to come into the family of God. And one day his job is going to be done, the church will be raptured, and then Jesus will once again turn his attention to the people of Israel. But Patrice, his job is simply to testify of Jesus, and he is obviously very, very active. That's why Acts chapter 2 is so important. That's sort of the grand entrance of the Holy Spirit on this earth. So I hope that helps, Patrice. Thank you very, very, very much. Make no mistake, he's God. I, I sometimes at church hear Patrice call him the forgotten God because think about this. We have the power to quench the Holy Spirit and the work God wants to do in us. And I imagine how frustrating it is for the Holy Spirit when he wants to do something magnificent and we don't let him because we're afraid or because we're too lazy or because we just are okay with the way things are. The Holy Spirit's role in our life is absolutely vital and he is God. Here's a question from Tony. He just called into the studio. I'm confused about Jehovah's Witnesses. What is it that they believe that is so wrong? Tony, you're not as confused as Jehovah's Witnesses are confused. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, they'll call him the Son of God, but they believe he is a created being. Um, they believe, um, um, and I have no idea where they get this, but they believe that um, Michael the Archangel and Jesus are one and the same, uh, just different manifestations of the same. But they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They, they, they can call him the Son of God. By the way, Mormons call him the Son of God too, but they too don't believe that he is God. And that's where their error comes in. 
That's what makes both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses a cult, because they change the, the character, the nature of, of who Jesus is. So to them, Jesus is the one who died for the sins of the world, but the Jehovah's Witnesses have to tell you how to avail yourself of those sins, and you have to become one of them. So uh, they are a cult, a full-blown cult. Um, they work their way to heaven by knocking on doors, um, but they have Jesus completely wrong. You know, one of the problems, I think, Tony, that we have with both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses is that we use so much of the same terminology. Um, they actually have changed uh, the Watchtower's um, editing of the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, by adding the word other, um, where John says, and all things were created by him and toward him. Uh, they insert the word other. They claim that a, a preeminent Greek scholar is sure that that's what it was, and, and yet that's not true. There's no Greek scholar who could ever look at those manuscripts and say that's what it means. So the Jehovah's Witnesses simply don't believe Jesus is God, and what that means is that they are lost. So thank you for the question. Here's a question from Ben that was just called in as well. Pastor Ron, can you please let my wife Brenda know that it's biblically her job to wait on me hand and foot when I'm sick? And they're getting a good laugh at this. In parentheses, it says, ha, ha, ha. Ben, remember, you're the head servant in your home. So if you're really, really sick, suck it up and take care of Brenda. <laughs> Thanks for asking the question. I know Brenda's taking very good care of you. I didn't know you were sick. We'll be praying for you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I didn't expect that question from Ben. Uh, here is an anonymous question that I'll get some heat for. Um, Pastor Ron, I'm a Catholic considering becoming a Christian. Why should I? As a Catholic, aren't I already a Christian? Anonymous, I have no way of knowing whether or not you're born again. I have no way of knowing. I do know that being a Catholic doesn't make you a Christian. The only thing that makes you a Christian, according to Jesus, and when Jesus was talking uh, about this, he was talking to a very religious man, the preeminent teacher in Israel, John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he will in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. So the, the standard is you got to be born again. And if you're not born again, then you're not a Christian. The Catholic Church doesn't teach the need to be born again. The Catholic Church has so much doctrinal error and besides, the Catholic Church can't decide what it believes. It changes all the time. We've got a new pope who's changing things now, even uh, last month, uh, insisting that there were some incorrect translations that need to be reworded for more clarity in the Bible, in your New Testament Gospels. So there's a lot of doctrinal errors, but this to me is the most significant one. You've got to be born again. Going to church doesn't save you. Being a Catholic doesn't save you. You have to make the decision to give your heart to Jesus. And of course, I would beg you to do so. And if you're a born-again Christian, I can tell you it's going to be hard to sit in the Catholic Church. So that's the best I can tell you. I can't judge your heart. I don't know your walk with the Lord. There are Catholics who are born-again Christians. Um, most of the time, my experience is that they leave the Catholic Church. But it's hard to be a born-again Christian when your church says there's no need to be. So, Anonymous, that's the best I can do with the question that you asked. Here is a question that was also called into the studio. It says, after Jesus is returned in the second coming, what becomes of the job of the Holy Spirit? Well, Ray, we don't really know other than we know the Spirit uh, is going to be involved in, in the millennial reign of Christ on earth. We know that the Spirit is going to be involved in the in the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, just like the Spirit hovered over the, the waters of the earth uh, when, when earth was created. Uh, he'll be involved. Um, believe me, he'll be active and he'll be busy. And since all inspiration comes from the Spirit of God, uh, he will be teaching us and, and helping us grow uh, in our understanding of the Lord. Now remember, uh, after Jesus' the second coming, we're coming with him. So for you and for me, Ray, as Christians, uh, we won't have 
um, our, our physical bodies like we have them now, we will be with Jesus. We will be like Jesus. We will know in full where now we only know in part. So uh, just like now, uh, we don't really know what the specific job of the Father is uh, because Jesus is seated at his right hand, the power seat. Um, we, we know the Spirit's job because Jesus described it. But in this age of grace, things change. And so Jesus isn't passive. We know that he ever lives to make intercession for us. We know that he's doing the bidding of his Father because uh, he has the eternal subjugation to the Father in terms of authority. It doesn't make him any less God. Um, but, but there are things that we don't know and can't understand. But I promise you that in the millennial reign of Christ on earth, after he comes, Jesus, for the second time and reclaims this world for his own, uh, we will see and understand uh, what the, the unity, this marvelous unity between Father, Son, and Spirit is all about. I can say that before Jesus comes in the seven-year Great Tribulation, before he comes and sets foot on the Mount of Olives, I can say that the Holy Spirit is going to lead the greatest revival in the history of the world in those seven years. And he's going to do it with the help of, of the two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, at the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Um, he's going to do it through the ministry of the 144,000 evangelists who are going to be endued with supernatural power. That will be the power of the Holy Spirit. And it will be the Holy Spirit drawing men to Jesus even during the Great Tribulation. So beyond that, we really don't know. All we know is that life on earth is going to be magnificent, only to get even better when there's a new heaven and a new earth created. So, uh, Ray, we can't be more specific than that because we don't know. But uh, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. So he will be at work always, just as he is now. Hey, thanks for the calls and the questions today. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Tonight, remember, men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch online at calvarysa.com. See you tomorrow. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.